hey, welcome to Assorted Goods. My name is Dan Felton. Thank you for joining me again this episode as we take a curious look at the world around us. I hope you're doing well out there. This episode, we're diving into a topic that just seems to be begging for the patented assorted goods style of figuring out what the hell some things are. And every so often, a new word or term emerges and becomes a common piece of our cultural knowledge, like our familiarity with the term influencer or variant or whatever the hell a wordle is. Now, the term NFT is one that by now you're almost guaranteed to have heard. Unless you have some prime real estate under a rock somewhere, in which case, is there room for me? Seriously, the real estate market here in the above rock world is getting a little dicey, so just asking. But NFTs, non-fungible tokens, are all the rage right now. Like Pokemon cards were when I was a kid. That is, if Pokemon cards somehow cost ridiculous amounts of money. So this episode, I, myself, your host, Dan, will embark on the journey of figuring out what the hell the deal is with NFTs. Where did they come from? How do they work? Are they really as stupid as big sections of the internet say they are? Basically, I'm trying to remove all the memes about them from my brain and start from scratch and doing my best job to have an unbiased and fair view of this booming market of monkey JPEGs or something like that. Okay, all right, I'm starting from scratch now. So let's dive in and figure out NFTs and start funging some information or non-funging it. I don't know. Yeah, we've got a lot to learn, so let's just get to it. Assorted Goods is produced by Disinformed Media in association with Verboten Productions. Promotional support comes from the Always Up Network at DeanBlundell.com. So I'll admit right off the bat that my knowledge of NFTs coming into this episode was at best about the equivalent of most regular people. I've known of them, and I have a vague idea of what they are and how they work, but most of all, I have an absolute blast cracking NFT jokes on Twitter, but assorted goods, like I said in the intro, it's about taking a deeper and more balanced look at the topic of each episode. And so, I'm wiping the slate clean, no more memes and no more jokes, and all my knowledge of the scams and the shady side of NFTs putting it all on the back burner as we get going here, and giving NFTs a fair chance to convince me of their validity. But also, there is one thing beyond all those jokes, which actually tickles my curiosity just a little bit. It's the concept of digital ownership, which to me is actually a bit of an interesting concept, and one that really does feel like it has an applicable use in the future. In the episode of Assorted Goods a little while back about the metaverse, I touched on the idea of NFT-style ownership being a valid piece of our further diving into the digital world in the coming decades. But at the same time, are we really rushing this fast to instill the concepts of ownership in the digital world, as though the physical world isn't already centered around everything being mine? But we'll get back to that as we go along. So let's begin with the basics. Come on, you know where we're going to start this episode, don't you? With the name, of course, non-fungible tokens. It's really not a catchy name now, is it? And human brains often operate in such simple ways. And when something sounds funny or confusing, that's pretty much how it's going to get interpreted. Maybe the jokes about NFTs stem from that word right there in the middle. Fungible. Fungible. It's fun to say in its own special little way, but what the hell does it mean? Of course, I'm obviously about to tell you. According to Merriam-Webster, my go-to dictionary, but fungible is defined as, quote, being something, such as money or a commodity, of such nature that one part or quantity may be replaced by another equal part or quantity in paying a debt or settling an account. Another definition is capable of mutual substitution, i.e. interchangeable. Now, from Wikipedia, Fungibility is the property of a good or a commodity whose individual units are essentially interchangeable. There's that word again, same idea. And also from Wikipedia, and I think this is a good way of explaining it. For example, gold is fungible, since a specified amount of pure gold is equivalent to that same amount of pure gold, whether it comes in the form of a coin, an ingot, or any other state. Whereas a unique item, such as gold fashioned into a statue by a famous artist, would no longer be considered fungible. So fungibility indicates that something is of equal interchangeability in terms of its value. 
It's like the absence of uniqueness, an added value based on perception, speculation, or scarcity. That being said, NFTs are not fungible. It's right there in the name, but that means that they are unique and not interchangeable for equivalent value with other tokens. For example, I give you a dollar, you give me a dollar of the same currency back. Those dollars are fungible with each other, so to speak. Each one is worth the same as the other. But if I trade you a Michael Jordan rookie card and you give me some random guy's trading card in return, those are non-fungible items, not of interchangeable or equivalent value with each other. So you can think of NFTs a little bit like trading cards. They're worth their own individual value, not just, say, the value of the paper and ink that they're printed with. Did I hammer that home enough for you? Is it making sense so far? I hope so. Now, an NFT itself is defined as a non-interchangeable, there's that word again, unit of data stored on a blockchain, the digital ledger that tracks the unique ownership of whatever that specific token is. And these tokens can be art, photos, videos, even audio files are being pushed as NFTs now, an emerging concept in the podcast industry that is currently in the highly questionable stage, I would say. And I'm going to prevent myself from being more blunt about that issue at this moment. NFTs as a concept in podcasting is frankly embarrassing, and it's being pushed by a lot of people who have an air of legitimacy in the industry. And frankly, that's shameful and stupid. But all right, I lied. Clearly, I was going to share a little bit of thoughts, but let's move on. This is what we're dealing with here. The concept of the non-fungible token is essentially a way to certify and track digital ownership of stuff that has existed in the digital sphere for years. Now, people can purchase and then claim ownership of, say, a picture, video, you name it, and that purchase is then verified on the blockchain. It's an attempt at a digital version of a verified and authentic ownership in the real world, which is something that we actually have. In the physical world, say I go to a fancy auction and buy myself an expensive painting. Can you picture me doing that? Really? Just sitting there, throwing up my little paddle, and then boom, I get that sweet winning bid. Mmm, dopamine rush from my victory. That painting of a cabin sitting on a lake or something. It's mine, all mine. But how do people know that I bought the real thing? Well, this boils down to a concept known as provenance, which is very important in the art community because it's defined as a record of ownership of a work of art used as a guide to authenticity. Provenance can also mean the beginning of something's existence, which those two definitions kind of work in tandem. The provenance of an artistic item really is proof of its authenticity stemming back to its creation. Now, establishing provenance in the art world, or in any collector community, really, is usually done with a COA, a Certificate of Authenticity, a document that is signed and verified either by the original creator or by a certified expert in the field. This is the kind of thing you would get if you, say, bought an autographed football off eBay. The person who sold it to you would also attach or include a Certificate of Authenticity, verifying that it was actually signed by the person that it supposedly was signed by. So one way we can look at NFTs is that they are an attempt to instill the concept of provenance in the world of digital creations. But there's a catch, of course. In the physical art world, fraud is common, and fake documents of authenticity pop up all the time. So you can't imagine that there wouldn't be issues with NFTs as well, and there surely are. We'll get back to that. So then where did NFTs themselves emerge from? Blockchain technology has been around for years now, and slapping the concept of ownership on the images and videos and whatever you want of the internet, you know, things that have existed out here for decades, well, it seems to be a step in a new direction. Now, let me interject my opinion here, something I obviously have no problem doing, but I'll try to take a step back again, back to my level-headed look at this all afterwards. But moving in to make everything on the internet a commodity to be bought or sold really does seem like a money grab right off the top to me, before we're even getting deeper into this topic. It already smells like a scam. Yes, artists should own their own work, undoubtedly. And digital art is a real thing. It's out there all the time. But in the quest to make more money, skeptical forces are surely at work trying to make an easy buck. But that's another thing we're going to come back to. NFTs are currently mostly associated with the Ethereum blockchain, as opposed to, say, the Bitcoin blockchain. You very likely know what Bitcoin is, and its underlying technology is the Bitcoin blockchain the ledger where the transactional data of Bitcoin transactions are stored and any history and proof of ownership exists on that ledger. 
Then there's also the Ethereum blockchain. And while in reality, there's currently thousands of blockchains out there, since we live in a world where there is a rush to get in on this new technology, and there seems to be hundreds of new cryptocurrencies every day. The reason NFTs exist on the Ethereum blockchain is because the Bitcoin blockchain is pretty much just for currency. The technology has limitations in that way. Whereas the Ethereum blockchain allows for a more robust creation and management of digital assets. It's primed for businesses to build new blockchain technologies and for this idea of digital art ownership to take hold like it has in recent years. But the origins of NFTs actually go back a lot further than you probably think. In late 2012, mathematician Manny Rosenfeld wrote a paper in which he introduced the concept of colored coins, that being bitcoins that were not the same as the simple currency, but would be colored in a way that they would be transferable as goods in the real world. This would be like the idea of having, say, 100 special tickets to something sold on the blockchain and then redeemable for a specific thing, like, say, a special event or in exchange for a limited product to be used as coupons, subscriptions, you think of it, you name it, you can apply it that way. These colored coins explore the idea of ownership of something beyond a growable currency on the blockchain. It's like digitizing Willy Wonka's golden tickets. Hey, now there's a movie. Now, colored coins didn't exactly work out very well, but it did kind of plant the seed that led us down the rabbit hole of how to digitize ownership of assets beyond just currency. The first NFT was minted in 2014 by a digital artist named Kevin McCoy, who created the piece called Quantum, a pixelated octagon with some colors and shapes. Now, that original NFT was sold at the famous auction house Sotheby's just a few months ago with a humble price of merely $1.4 million. I guess the value of art really is subjective. But between 2014 and 2017, there was a lot of experimentation being done in the idea and the technology behind NFTs. In 2014, the counterparty platform was created on Bitcoin 2.0. You're probably wondering, what the hell are you talking about? But Bitcoin 2.0 was the base technology that allowed the creation of new blockchains and the technology behind what we now have with NFTs, such as the Ethereum blockchain. Basically, it was an upgraded version of the Bitcoin blockchain that had existed previously that allowed for sort of a wider range of digital assets to be created. Counterparty allowed the creation and trading of digital assets, and in 2016 was the platform where a literal meme marketplace was created. Again, you might be wondering what the hell I'm talking about, so I'm going to take a detour here to explain that as well, because it's amazing in its own special way. And what I'm referring to here is something called Rare Pepe Crypto Art. Now, Pepe the Frog, it's a creepy cartoon frog with a humanoid body. It's very popular in the weirder parts of the internet, and you've likely seen it once or twice before, either in some completely insane political meme, for example, or just being used for general internet insanity. But in 2016, some of these images of old Pepe the Frog were labeled as rare by some lesser-known internet communities, and thanks to blockchain technology, these rare Pepes were soon being bought and sold as NFTs. In October of 2021, one of these rare Pepes sold at Sotheby's for $3.6 million. God, clearly I am in the wrong business. Now, a couple other examples of early NFT use. A mobile game called Spells of Genesis used Counterparty's platform to issue in-game assets starting in 2016. And a trading card game called Force of Will started selling trading cards on the blockchain with Counterparty as well. The point here being that NFTs aren't as simple as just images or videos or internet tokens being bought and sold for collectors. It's also a basic technology that some industries are starting to actually pick up and try to use more widespread especially the gaming community, which is currently going through a massive sort of civil war of ideas over the use of NFTs. There's a couple of great YouTube videos of people explaining why it's a terrible idea for video games, and I'll make sure to include those in the source list for this episode. But anyways, the counterparty platform played a big role in creating and establishing these ideas of digital assets on the blockchain. But when the Ethereum blockchain launched in 2015, that's what set the stage for NFTs to become what they are today. This is done by the Ethereum blockchain, allowing developers to create tokens 
under a standard. Now, this token standard on the Ethereum blockchain was an easier-to-use version of previous standards. And basically what these standards are are sort of a set of rules that you follow in order to properly create one of these digital tokens. And since the Ethereum token standard included what can be described as an easy-to-use set of guidelines for developers to create these tokens, it allowed users with a lower level of technical knowledge the chance to use this technology to create their own tokens on the Ethereum blockchain, thus broadening its uses and its user base. Now, I know that's a ton of information we've tackled already right here, and I'm really hoping that it makes sense for you. It gets a little dicey for me as well at times. Just trying to keep this baby on the rails for both of us, you know, and really get down to the issue here. Now, ah, deep breath. Let's get back into it here. So fast forward to 2017. After the success of the Rare Pepe directory, two Canadian self-described creative technologists, John Watkinson and Matt Hall, create a project on the Ethereum blockchain. Their idea? 10,000 randomly generated characters would be created, with no two of them being alike. There's that concept of uniqueness, again, that's going to show up a lot with NFTs. But the project would be called CryptoPunks. This may be where things are getting a little bit more familiar for you. These CryptoPunks are those pixelated avatar pictures of little people usually smoking something for some reason that blew up in popularity this past year and are now seemingly all over the internet. The CryptoPunks project would use the ERC-20 token specification, which I'm definitely not going to dive into right now because if we do that and get that technical, our heads are going to explode. And I'm sure there are experts out there to explain the deeper sides of that for you. But this is the simple way of putting it. The ERC-20 tokens are actually still fungible, meaning that they are of equivalent and interchangeable value such as a basic cryptocurrency. For example, one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. Then there's the ERC721 tokens, which are the non-fungible token standards that get used for NFTs. Remember, those token standards are part of the creation process for these digital assets. Now, the CryptoPunks project was actually not created by following the non-fungible ERC721 token standard, but they were also not technically fungible under the ERC-20 standard either. They actually existed as a sort of hybrid of the two technologies. But CryptoPunks launches, and 10,000 of these unique characters were actually given away for free to anyone with an Ethereum wallet. Then, they get sold and traded on a secondary market, which is where all the big money was being made this past year. This idea of there only being 10,000 of these unique characters is a market concept as old as time. The creation of the idea of scarcity means that whatever you've made has a higher level of value because, well, there's only so many pixel people smoking cigars to go around. Nevertheless, CryptoPunks changes the game. Then, after CryptoPunks, there's the CryptoKitties project in 2017 and 2018, which allowed users to adopt and care for virtual cats, and then, of course, buy and trade them as well. Virtual cats have been sold for over $100,000, while, of course, real animal shelters continue to be overrun. But anyways, let's not preach any more than I usually do. But introduced by a Canadian company, Axiom Zen, at a hackathon event for the Ethereum blockchain, CryptoKitties become a massive success very quickly, too. And even at one point, they clog up the Ethereum blockchain with how much trading was going on. MSNBC describes cryptocurrencies at the time as a digital beanie baby mania. And now, in the past couple of years, the technology for NFTs on the blockchain has simply caught on in the mainstream and exploded. Why? Well, you're going to need a hint on this one? Because it's clearly profitable for certain people. And for one reason or another, people want to buy these bits of digital art or virtual pets or whatever the NFT world has to offer. And remember, there is a lot to offer from NFTs. They're being used, yes, for digital art, but again, also for gaming and for transactions. As much as I come into this episode very, very cynical of NFTs, and at this point of the episode, I can't say I've changed really a lot in any way, but like I said early on, conceptually, there is something underlying this boom that 
has to eventually become applicable in the digital world, confusing as though it may be, and as much as it appears that it's been hijacked for nefarious purposes, or just let's call them scams. Now, through 2018 and 2019, numerous blockchain companies adopt the NFT concept for their businesses. And as the technology becomes more widespread and easier to use, everyone wants in on the fun. Classic gold rush mentality. Now, this period of time for NFTs, I saw referred to as the NFT Cambrian explosion, a reference to the point in the Earth's history where there was a massive explosion of biodiversity on the planet. So in 2021, NFTs explode in popularity, as we all saw, whether it was the mainstream attention of the crypto punk characters or the similar Bored Apes collection of NFT art. Now, it's not just internet folks trying to make a buck with some digital art. Content creators, bands, celebrities, sports leagues, major businesses, women who sell their farts in jars, just about everybody is trying to transition into the world of NFTs and get in on the action. The NBA created Top Shot, a digital asset collection for basketball stuff, which has been very popular. Marvel is moving into the NFT business as though 400 movies and a bajillion dollars wasn't enough for them. Hell, even Canadian icon Wayne Gretzky, for Christ's sake, is moving into the NFT space. Who isn't in on this? Maybe I'm just behind the curve, but the general sentiment I see from people online is that NFTs are dumb or they're just a scam. And even after going through the history here myself, I'm not totally convinced otherwise. But much like cryptocurrency as a whole, even if it doesn't make a lot of sense on the surface in a lot of ways, there is something to be said about this many people getting involved in the industry. Is it a bubble ready to burst? Or is this really the wave of the future? With Facebook changing the company name to Meta, by the way, listen to that episode of Assorted Goods about that topic, but it signals that the major players in the tech industry may be betting that the digital world is going to be the most important world in the future. And therefore, digital ownership is key, and the trading of digital assets in a marketplace is a frontier that everyone wants to be in on at the ground floor. It's the apparent birth of a new economy layered over the economic forces we already live with. But again, and really, it's kind of the question of the episode here. Is this for real? Is there validity to some aspect of NFTs beyond their perceived value to their creators and their holders? And I know, this is a dense episode. Denser than assorted goods is typically known for, which I know it really is most times. But look, I don't blame you if you need to get up, go for a walk, let some of this decompress in your brain a little bit. And on that note... I think this is a perfect time to take a quick break and hear some messages from some fellow podcasters who would love for you to add their shows to your rotation. And honestly, maybe go listen to their show for a minute and come back for the second half of this one. I honestly wouldn't blame you. But when we do come back, do you really own these NFTs? Is there any legal basis of this ownership? Can it be enforced? Also, who's making money in the NFT world? What's literally fueling this industry? And of course, the scams, the bullshit, and thinking about the concept of ownership as a whole. Still, so much more to unpack, and that's coming up after the break here on Assorted Goods. Hey everyone, this is George, the Bone King, interrupting this transmission to tell you about the Fan Freaks Podcast, the podcast where we freak out about our favorite movies, games, comics, and any media in between. Check us out on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Hope to get freaky with you all very soon. Well, hello there. My name is CJ, and I am the host of Talkin' Shiz Podcast, a podcast that is a comedy podcast that has everything you're looking for. Well, maybe not everything you're looking for, but if you're looking for something different, definitely stop on by. My podcast can be found on any podcast platform. I talk about movies, strangest stories on the internet, music, there's a little about everything, kind of pop culture-ish. So if you're looking for something different, definitely stop on by the Talkin' Shiz Podcast, and I will see you on the next episode.
Welcome back to Assorted Goods. We're diving into the topic of NFTs this episode. And in the first half, we got to know the meaning of the words and the history behind the boom of NFTs. And now the fun stuff. And let's jump in again with a concept that I've maybe been most curious about ever since I first heard of NFTs. And that's the legal groundwork of all of this stuff. Like, what's the legal basis behind actually owning an NFT? What do you get when you throw down a whole bunch of cryptocurrency to buy one? Any law anywhere in the world is enforceable based on something like jurisdiction, where you are in the world. So if I steal your NFT in another country, and I live somewhere that doesn't really have digital piracy laws or maybe loosely enforces them, can you do anything about it? Hell, can you do anything about it if the thief lived next door to you even? It's something that is often already an issue in the digital world. Laws are already years and years behind the growth of technology. But let's say you buy a million-dollar NFT in an auction. Congratulations, by the way. How do you ensure that you have legal authority to enforce that ownership that you purchased? Possession is supposedly nine-tenths of the law, after all. Now, the first thing I would imagine comparing an NFT to is a copyright, or a trademark even. You know, if I steal a licensed image from Google Image Search, or if I publish a YouTube video with copyrighted music, my stuff can be flagged and banned for infringing on those legal trademarks, something that I experienced with some of the early episodes of Assorted Goods and trying to put them up on YouTube. And for anyone who has experienced that on YouTube, sometimes videos only get locked in certain ways and in certain countries. It's an example of what I said before, digital enforcement when it comes to laws surrounding anything digital nowhere near global. So NFT ownership should be like a copyright, you think, right? You buy it, you have the copyright enforcement legal framework, let's say, behind you, right? Right? Well, not really. The purchasing of an NFT is not the same as filing and holding a copyright or trademark over what was purchased. That is to say, if you buy an NFT of a bored ape profile picture for your Twitter account, it's not the same as having a legal filing for that image in the same way that it would be for a company's logo, let's say. You don't gain the rights to the intellectual property of the artwork itself. So then, what do you get, legally speaking, when purchasing an NFT? Well, let me quote this blurb from the website of Canadian law firm Macmillan LLP. Quote, It may come as a surprise to some purchasers that the rights associated with their NFT do not include the intellectual property rights to the underlying work. It is important to scrutinize the smart contracts associated with each NFT to understand which rights the purchaser is truly acquiring. When investing in physical artwork, future profitability is typically based upon the value of each specific piece as art, rather than upon any scheme to modify or reproduce the artwork or to commercialize the copyright in the artistic work, end quote. Now, they do a pretty good job of explaining this all right there, and it's a pretty good point of reference for us. When you buy an NFT, it doesn't mean that you are now the owner of the underlying artistic creation. You're just the owner of this minted token on the blockchain. You bought this copy of the digital art you purchased. Think about the colored coins that we were talking about earlier on, created in 2012. You buy an NFT, you get a limited-run digital print of one of these tokens, you could say which can vary in their scarcity or rarity. Remember, it's the speculative value that makes these items non-fungible in the first place. The blurb from Macmillan LLP goes on to say exactly that. Quote, For individuals or investment funds purchasing NFTs with an intent to monetize them, profitability from such investments is typically based on the specific edition purchased rather than any opportunity to exploit the underlying work. See, they do a great job once again. So when you buy a piece of digital art or anything else as an NFT, either you've purchased it for your own collection or ownership, or it's something that you buy for a long-term investment, a speculative asset. What you haven't purchased is the ability to take that crypto punk pixel character, for example, and make it the face of your brand or reproduce it and sell it as a commodity of your own. You can't turn these bored ape pictures into dope t-shirts and sell them. So when you buy an NFT, you get ownership of that specific token on the blockchain. But it also doesn't mean that other people can't right-click and save as the picture that you now technically own on the blockchain any more than someone can go to the Louvre and take a picture of a painting and then say that they own that. Now, here's another quote from my research into this because 
There's some great quotes, and they've done a better job of explaining than I can do sometimes, so I'm just giving it to you straight. But anyways, from the site Law Technology Today, quote, smart contracts will be key in this sense. NFT sellers will need to ensure that smart contracts clearly outline the rights that are being assigned as part of the NFT. For example, copyright in a work will not transfer unless it is expressly allowed for. An NFT is essentially a license to a specific piece of content. It's crucial to make sure that license is as well-defined as possible. This is important when you keep that in mind that once minted, the NFT is permanent. No changes to that contract are coming afterwards, end quote. So we mentioned earlier the use of these guidelines for creations for NFTs on the Ethereum blockchain or any other blockchain. These were known as smart contracts. And these smart contracts are, as the last quote said, permanent. When an NFT gets created, the details of what's being bought and sold are outlined and finalized upon their creation as a token. So if you buy an NFT, you need to be clear about what it includes up front. Because in reality, it's just buying the ownership of a piece of digital content that is not necessarily legally enforceable beyond being able to say, I bought this numbered copy of work and now it's mine. That's pretty much all you're getting. The truth is, any potential intellectual property or copyright is pretty much usually retained by the original artist and not by the purchaser, which isn't really different than in the physical art world anyways, I guess, but any further agreement beyond that has to be incorporated into the smart contract at the point of creation of the digital token that becomes the NFT you buy. Sketchy and unclear legal conditions? Well, sounds like something that is primed for scams and people spending money without knowing what the hell they're doing. What the believers in NFTs really need is there to be a concrete, legally significant set of rules governing what NFTs actually mean, which at the moment, they don't have. As an impromptu history lesson, though, apparently in 1886, something called the Berne Convention was created, which protected any creative works and their authors. It was actually the first governing principle for copyrights around the world, and it was signed by 179 nations. 1886? Look how many countries were getting on board and getting shit done. What happened? I don't understand. But the convention still gets tested by copyright issues. But in terms of the digital world, in 1996... There was a treaty created under the Berne Convention to bring these same principles into the digital world, but it currently only has 110 nations signed on. So agreements on digital copyright are weaker than previous global agreements on copyrights. So really, NFTs, if anything, have a much larger uphill battle ahead of them. So then why buy these things? Why sink money into NFTs at all if in reality you're just paying money for images that I, myself, could screenshot and save on my phone. Well, for one, as much as the right-click save-as jokes are pretty funny, and they are, as we touched on in the first half of the episode, NFTs aren't just used for digital art. In fact, if anything, digital artwork may be one of the worst ways to use this technology. Whereas a minted token that is exchangeable for, say, a limited run of something, for example, everyone with one of 100 tokens gets access to purchase a limited edition pair of shoes online. Now, that makes sense for the use of this technology, to me at least. I don't know, maybe I'm grasping at straws, but it's like I said previously, the idea of having an NFT that's Willy Wonka's golden ticket, that kind of makes more sense to me than buying a JPEG off the internet. But look, if I'm buying all these NFTs and I can't reproduce them and alter them, only resell them later on, then what is the economic principle behind this whole booming economy? Well, this is where that idea of NFTs being a speculative asset comes into play. It's about time we got back around to that. NFTs, as we've mentioned, are really just the ownership of a unique digital asset on the blockchain, but not much more than that. Now, get this. Eminem bought a Bored Ape NFT last year for $450,000 in Ethereum cryptocurrency, which is now his Twitter profile picture. So can Eminem take that Bored Ape and print a million t-shirts with the M and Ape, yes, that's what it's actually been called, on it, and sell them? Again, no. The intellectual property of the original art isn't what he purchased. Eminem, like any other purchaser of an NFT, with non-exclusive rights to the underlying intellectual property, can only really hope for one thing, that someone else will come along at a later date and purchase the same NFT for more money than you paid for it. That's what makes these a speculative asset, economically speaking. According to Investopedia, something that is considered speculative is defined as follows, quote, 
An investor who purchases a speculative investment is likely focused on price fluctuations. While the risk associated with the investment is high, the investor is typically more concerned about generating a profit based on market value changes for that investment than on long-term investing. And that basically says it all. So maybe you're thinking, oh, so something like an NFT is pretty much a bullshit investment based on values of perception or even manipulated ideas of scarcity and value that have hardly any tangible basis in the real world? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Now, the average sale price of the Bored Ape collection of NFTs just in 2022 so far alone is 83 Ether coins, or about 280,000 real dollars each. Seriously, why am I podcasting? Eminem is just one of plenty of celebrities getting in on the NFT game. Shaquille O'Neal, Jimmy Fallon, Steve Aoki, Logan Paul, Mark Cuban, Serena Williams, so many more. There's been a steady stream of the celebrity endorsements of the NFT business. And just a sidebar here again, that the use of celebrity to back a product is maybe the oldest trick in the marketing book a way to create an air of legitimacy that regular people fall for all the time because of the way they react to the auras of fame. And if you think that celebrity endorsements do equal legitimacy by some chance of a product or a service, you may want to see the kinds of things that celebrities have put their name on over the years. It's not a bad episode idea itself, but NFTs are being bought and sold for huge amounts of money, but without any real, tangible, underlying value beyond their pure perceived speculation. I'm really hammering that point home this episode, I know. But if that's the case, then fooling people into buying them must be a part of the current state of affairs that NFTs exist in, right? Well, ding, 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 bang on. It absolutely is. The NFT business is riddled with scams and fraud, but so is the cryptocurrency industry as a whole. Why? Because the same principle shows up in both. There really isn't anything of actual tangible value being created. And the only way that investors in cryptocurrency, or specifically NFTs, make money is by convincing new buyers or investors, or dare I say suckers, to get in on the action too. Cryptocurrency is worth more when more people buy into it. An NFT is only worth more if you can convince other people to spend more on the thing you've already purchased. Like when you buy crypto, it isn't like buying stock in a company. You don't infuse your money into a business so that it can, say, build a factory or hire workers, increase the production of goods, and therefore profits, etc., etc. Buying any cryptocurrency is buying into something on the presumption that more people will buy in and therefore increase its overall value, which is pretty much the definition of a Ponzi scheme, something that the crypto industry has been called before. And NFTs aren't really different, like we just talked about. Buying an NFT has value as long as you convince somebody else down the line to pay more for it than you paid for it. And how do you do that? Well, perception, changing it. And something that helps is something like celebrity endorsements, for one. By the way, there will be some good articles about the argument for crypto being a scam as a whole in the sources list for this episode on disinformed.ca. But what about actual NFT scams, though? Well, for one, much like the issue of fraud and misleading documents to establish provenance in the physical art world, the digital art world and the NFT space has the same problem. Tracking the underlying intellectual property ownership of NFT art is tricky in its own way. And remember, as an NFT buyer, you don't even get that transferred to you upon purchase. In the process of minting a token on the blockchain, the person who creates the token or uploads it essentially digitally signs the creation. Think of a painter putting their signature in the corner of a painting. And yes, I know, tons of references to paintings this episode. But of course, it is possible to mint one of these creations while simply pretending to be the creator on some of the NFT platforms out there. Identity theft in the NFT game is very real. There's been NFTs that have been created and sold without the consent of the people involved either. I mean, get this. William Shatner, of all people, apparently appealed to Twitter to increase their security after some of his tweets were made into NFTs and then sold without him being aware of it. Forgeries are also very common, and without a legal framework to work with and enforce, it puts artists in a tough spot when their creations are stolen and sold. Finding out who owns an anonymous crypto wallet it's damn near impossible. And law enforcement, which is already behind the curve in the technology world, is beyond hope of being able to stop any of these forgeries or scams that have to do with a blockchain. 
the NFT scams that are out there kind of put a whole new spin on the old saying, buyer beware. The website DeviantArt, a digital art site that's been around for decades, has issued over 90,000 alerts of potential fraud to their users since 2020 and saw a 300% increase in potential fraud of their users' content just between November and December of 2021. Some of this theft is being carried out by automated bots that mint and list digital art creations in marketplaces at incredible speeds. So the problem is likely going to get a lot worse before it improves, if it improves. So NFTs are a business model that is flimsy, growing rapidly, purely speculative with massive holes in security, and its rapid expansion is bringing in countless people who don't know what they're buying exactly and scammers who are looking to take advantage if these purchases are even legitimate in the first place. Scams, Ponzi schemes, baseless speculation with millions and millions of dollars behind it. Oh, it's just a beautiful mashup of all the best things in society. And then... There's the problems of the real physical world too. Anything digital or computer-based requires something very important. Energy. Who knew? Powering the cryptocurrencies, the blockchains, and of course the NFTs now too, it's a massive energy drain for all the computer servers that have to run in order to keep these technologies going. And not just the energy drain, but the heat they give off themselves and the cooling systems needed to keep these servers from overheating them. What that means is that NFTs, let alone crypto as a whole, but they have a pretty big carbon footprint. For example, the NFT called Space Cat, just a gif of a cat in a rocket ship heading to the moon, had a carbon footprint of its own, equivalent to two months of an average European resident. And truth be told, the exact measure of NFTs and their effect on the environment isn't easy to actually pinpoint and quantify. The consensus is that they are absolutely harmful and have a large carbon footprint, but it's really just a part of the larger issue with cryptocurrency and the blockchain as a whole. Now, one transaction on the Ethereum blockchain apparently consumes around 70 kilowatt hours of energy, enough to power the average American home for two and a half days. For NFTs, the energy usage is even higher because of the multitude of steps along the way. The creation or minting of the token the bidding, the selling, and the transferring, well, it all adds up. One assessment puts the energy cost of minting an NFT on the Ethereum blockchain at 332 kilowatt hours of energy, almost five times the energy cost of just a simple transaction. And there have been calls to make NFTs and cryptocurrencies more green. But the issue is that in terms of our planet's energy usage and going greener, Cryptocurrencies and NFTs seem like they're really unimportant compared to, say, things like keeping the lights on in people's homes and powering vehicles in a cleaner way. But, you know, that's just me. How all this energy is used is in the computing processes behind the steps of building on the blockchain ledger, the digital record keeping of blockchain technologies. In order to add to the blockchain ledger, complex computer equations must be solved. And when a new piece gets added, during the process of any blockchain transaction, all those people who are out there and are mining cryptocurrencies, well, those people are competing to be the one to solve the equation first, because when they do, they get a reward. Hence why people have quit their jobs and become full-time cryptocurrency miners in recent years. Really is applicable with the gold rush analogy, isn't it? But the issue is that in the race to be the fastest and get the rewards, People build massive server farms, which require huge amounts of energy, thus incentivizing people to be more wasteful in the process. Overall, NFTs, not good for the environment either, but in any gold rush industry like this, the long-term effects are dead last on people's list of worries. It's a trademark of the human condition. So, ah, where are we as we close out this episode? How are you feeling as the listener? I am genuinely curious. This is an episode I'd love some feedback from you on. At the end of a really dense and maybe even somewhat confusing trail of technical details this episode, not to mention all the abstract concepts of digital ownership, there's been a lot going on here. I know, I sympathize. I have run the gauntlet myself just in the research and writing of this one. But if my dad is listening, I am also sorry to you if this episode has mostly sounded like absolute gibberish but I thank you for listening anyways. But I have one thought that I have to spill out into this episode still, and that's this thing that we as humans always seem to do with everything now. 
monetization of every single thing on Earth. NFTs still seem absurd to me, to the point that the concept of ownership itself gets brought into the question for me. Follow me here. I know that's a big, broad statement, but like, think about it. If I buy a piece of land, I now have an arbitrary and truthfully abstract claim over a then-defined boundary of the Earth we live on. It's mine now according to a transactional record where an exchange occurred. But what does ownership really mean? Sure, the transaction says it's yours, but what if someone else simply doesn't care or disagrees with that move? The situational backdrop of a ton of human history. Well, the concept of ownership is enforced by our bodies of law, which have agents of enforcement, right? You know, cops, for example. If I buy land, or say I go to the auction house and buy a painting, and Someone else refuses to move from the land or doesn't want to give me the painting or tries to take it for their own. I call one of these law enforcers to do something about it and punish them for defying the legally bound transaction and ownership transfer that I have because there are government laws backing the legitimacy of those transactions and outlining punishments for those who fail to recognize these rules. I know, I'm being super woe dude in sort of the pothead style that I am sometimes known for, but. Still, keep following me along here. In the NFT world, as we've learned this episode, there is no legal framework that can be enforced. And therefore, even with all the scams and fraud, there's nothing that can be done about the sketchy people involved, unless private tech companies enforce rules of their own, which, when they try, they often fail at. And if there's nothing solid backing it all up, then what the hell is it good for, really, and how long can it possibly last? And as we move into the metaverse and all the future digital possibilities we have on the horizon, what does it mean to own something that isn't there? Something that is even more made up than half of the concepts we've built our world around already. NFTs are becoming a joke to many people, a scam to many others, and a true vision of the future to those who believe in them. Because as we boil it all down, it's back to the fundamentals for us all. It's abstract, really. It's made up just like anything else is. And so NFTs and probably crypto too hang in the air right now as we all grapple with whether these ideas are going to stick or not. Like all the ideas we've had before. NFTs, crypto, blockchains, they're all going to have to run the same gauntlet of scrutiny and nitpicking and pulling them apart because if they can't take the heat, then it's on to the next one for all of us. And truth is, the concepts of this ownership is a non-fungible idea. It's unique, and the value of ownership is based on perception and general consensus. What is a home worth if everyone stopped believing in the idea that one person can own land, for example? What's a dollar worth without the belief that it has value and a solid foundation below it? And what is an NFT worth if nobody believes them to be worth anything at all? There's a lot about the global systems we've created that are pretty thin in their reality, and with NFTs, it's far more hollow than even that. But at the same time, the digital world is here to stay. And within it, human beings and the economic and market forces that rule our world now will demand that there are trusted and verified transactions with enforceable rules and regulations regarding ownership. Because without all that, it's got no legs to stand on. Maybe the current state of NFTs and crypto as a whole are just a product of being in their early days. Or maybe, like all these pieces of modern society, we really can fake it until it all becomes real. It wouldn't be the first time. For now, beware if you venture into the world of NFTs. And if you absolutely hate NFTs and everything associated with them, hey, at least now you have the knowledge to understand them a little bit better, and that's useful too. The future is filled with God knows what, and there's no end in sight to this gold rush mentality of any new and lucrative business, especially in the tech world. But it just feels like to me that there's got to be some sort of critical mass moment for our wildly out-of-control obsession with booming markets and speculative assets and a need to get in on something, no matter the long-term cost, or, well, even the short-term cost for that matter, but for me, after all this information I've taken in along the way making this episode, I'm still not a believer that NFTs hold any true value. Although I still think that verified and trustworthy digital ownership is a bit of a linchpin for the digital future that is currently being built. But I also have to wonder, 
If the unregulated Wild West scenario full of scams, confusion, and empty values plaguing NFTs and cryptocurrencies right now will undermine and destroy any potential future of being legitimate parts of our lives, or if this really is just the growing pains of crossing into a new frontier. I may joke about them today and be wishing I had gotten in on it all tomorrow. So it goes. Time will tell, and whatever the outcome, it'll be interesting if nothing else. So, ah, hell, saddle up and buy those bored apes or crypto kitties or podcast NFTs or whatever you want. Who am I to tell you what to do? Maybe someday this episode will sell for a big payday for me. Hmm. Maybe I should get in on all of this. All right, that's it for this episode of Assorted Goods. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please don't right-click and save as this episode. There is so much more to all the points we touched on in this one. The sources list for this episode is one of the largest I think I've ever had. So go to disinformed.ca slash assortedgoods to find the show notes and the source list for this episode. And if you have feedback for this show, you can reach me through the contact page on disinformed.ca or just make it easy and email me at dan at disinformed.ca. If you want to follow the show on the socials, you can follow me and Assorted Goods on Twitter and Instagram. The handle on both platforms is at DisinformedDan. Do you want to support Assorted Goods? All that I ask is that you subscribe to the show and tell a friend, share the love, get them on board. The music for this episode was created and produced by my brother, David Felton. Thank you, brother. And credit for the information used in the episode goes to all the journalists, academics, writers, editors, everyone out there involved in keeping people like me informed so I can provide people like you with a quality show. Thank you for listening. Take care of each other out there, and I'll catch you next time here on Assorted Goods.